the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us today. There is an author, speaker, kind of leadership guy by the name of Kerry Newhoff. Uh, he is well known in the pastor world, at least, if not the greater Christian world. Um, writes prolifically, blogs prolifically, just uh, kind of a force, uh, but also has a Twitter following that is pretty uh, expansive. So he tweeted something, Aubrey, that I got to be honest, didn't go over well with a lot of people. Oh, interesting, because lots of people really least. like him. So I'm anxious to hear this. So I'm just going to read the tweet. And then I want you to respond to it because you and I are both pastors. So it's about the local church. Okay. And he tweeted this because there was also a lot of people agreeing with him, I should say. So it kind of flew all around. Carrie Newhoff tweeted this just the other day. Why is the local Walmart run better than the local church? And then he answers that with this. That's a tragedy. That's the tweet, Aubrey. Why is the local Walmart run better than the local church? He concludes that to be a tragedy. What do you think about that? What do I think about that? Okay, I think I there's a few things that kind of went, oh, that rubs me a little bit the wrong way. So Mm -hmm. but let's unpack it and try to see what his perspective is. Let me tell you first what rubbed me the wrong way. One. I actually don't know if he's right. I, you know, like is the local Walmart a better look? I, I don't know if that's true. Two, maybe calling it a tragedy is a little extreme. I think the biggest sort of glaring thing here is a Walmart, a business, yes, a million dollar business is not the same, yes, not the same as a small local body of believers worshiping Jesus. And mm-hmm. and this really begs the question. Is a church supposed to be the same as like a massive institution, a massive business? I I don't think so. I think this is where we've actually gotten to a lot of trouble. Now, I'm not saying there aren't leadership things we can learn. I'm not saying there aren't strategies we can learn. The church is not a corporation. Uh, And you are getting at exactly what people were getting at on Twitter who were pushing back very hard. Mm. Uh, This idea that. Whoever said that Walmart and the church are supposed to be run the same? Yeah. And aren't there, isn't this tweet kind of encapsulating for some people what's wrong with church leadership right now? Not what we should be striving for. Like, is the actual goal that the church be run like a billion, multi billion dollar corporation? whose goal it is, is to make money and grow and grow and grow. Right. So what is the problem, Aubrey? Where is, uh, uh, let's go there. What is the danger in your opinion, if anything, when we do say, nope, we've got to run the local church like the local Walmart with the same um, 
priorities, the same goals, the same streamlining, all of this stuff. Where's the danger lie in that? Well, can I read a few of the responses to these tweets? Because I actually think they're really thoughtful. And this will kind of help our help our listeners and even us as we unpack this. But okay, one person said your views, the talking to Carrie, your views on what's better, and that word is in quotes, must be confused. Walmart literally pays people poverty wages. Many churches fill the gaps for these same families with their free stores and food pantries. I'd take the mess of a local church over the greed of Walmart investors. Somebody else says, look, these are two different organizations that value two very different outcomes. Churches should be run well. Many aren't. But to hold them next to Walmart and their practices as a standard is missing the beauty of the church for the soullessness of a box store. Mm -hmm. And let me add one more. This is a short one. And Walmart doesn't work with volunteers last time I checked. <laughs> so I, I just think it's like you're comparing apples and oranges. And, mm-hmm. and then anytime mm-hmm. we, we compare the church again to like some massive multi-million dollar entity and say the church needs to be that, I feel like this is where, and we actually criticized Julie Royce a little bit yesterday for kind of doing the opposite thing. But um, this is where we get the evangelical industrial complex and churches that are massive are run like businesses. And then we just see corrupt leaders fall. Now I'm not Mm. saying that it happens in every case, but I do think we need to remember the church is about uh, shepherding. The church is about a family. The church is about a body of people worshiping, serving Jesus in their local community together. And so sure there are churches that need better leadership I don't know that that means then we learn the answer from the local Walmart or the local Target or the local Costco or or whatever. I don't know. What did you think about this, Brian? So on the one hand, you just mentioned something important. I do think and I think what Carrie Newhoff is getting at is, um, you know, uh, we do excuse some bad leadership for it's just the church. Right. Right, Like um, whether it be sloppy administration or whether it be not thinking about where we are heading. But with that said, I think that this is this tweet is more problematic than it is helpful. And here's the reason, because it's exactly what you said. The church is not meant to be a big box corporation. Yeah. The church is messy. I believe uh, the church is meant to be uh, about the one and not the 99 mm-hmm. all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Like there is a slowness and a messiness to shepherding and to uh, discipleship and to what the church is supposed to be. So do we need to think through best practices and these? Absolutely. 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 This right. is not a uh, going, well, that's we're not trying to make money, so we could just be sloppy. That's not also the point here, right. but I think, and I think you make a great point to call it a tragedy. That's uh, a little kind of, extreme. Well, and it's, it's, it's extreme. And I think it's also telling as to what people who would agree with that say the purpose of the church is mm. and, and what, you know, it's growth. It's fat. What is Walmart and what is target? It's fast growth, right? It's, um, it's maximum um, efficiency and profits and right, all of right. this stuff over people sometimes, right. as you mentioned. Right. Uh, and so I think what this tweet does for me is it raises the question, what's the purpose of a Walmart? What's the purpose of the church? Uh, church, are there things that maybe we can learn from Walmart or Apple or GM or whatever else? Add, add in your huge organ. Sure. There's always yeah. stuff to learn. I don't think the goal is to model ourselves after them uh, with those goals and those, you know, and then and then use those things as our scorecard for all the reasons you read. So, right, right. Uh, 
It blew up on Twitter. I would love I for people to go check it out. It's at Carrie Newhoff. Why is the local Walmart run better than the local church? Also, the other question you raise is, is a good one. I don't know if my local Walmart is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe let's start there, right? <laughs> That's a good point. Coming up next, uh, the author of a challenging, exp- uh, inspiring, provocative book called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, a shooting survivor's journey into the realities of gun violence. That author's name is Taylor Schumann, and we're going to talk to Taylor next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Aubrey Sampson, my name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. And as we always say here on The Common Good, one of our goals is to uh, bring up topics that are hard, that people disagree about, that that we want to wrestle with, especially as uh, Christ followers. What is kind of our response to these hard topics that usually are just argued about and people are just kind of yelling at one each other. And, and with that in mind, uh, we want to talk to an author of a book called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Her name is Taylor Schumann. Taylor, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's absolutely our pleasure. Taylor, hey, before we jump into the book, uh, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, so, um, yeah, like you said, my name is Taylor Schumann, and um, right now I live in Charleston, South Carolina with my husband and our three-year-old and our two dogs, and um, I'm a writer and also do a lot of work for um, gun reform, gun violence prevention, um, and that's because I'm a shooting survivor. In 2013, mm-hmm. I was wounded um, in a school shooting at the college where I worked, um, which kind of set my life down a path that was unexpected that I did not plan for, um, but that has turned out to be a gift in my life. Mm. And Taylor, we would love if if you're comfortable with it for you to dive in and tell us a little bit about that event in 2013 and what happened and how it has impacted your impacted your life. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah. So in, in 2013, I was working um, at a community college in Southwest Virginia um, when one afternoon a, a student came in with, um, with a shotgun. Um, I was seated at, at my desk kind of in the lobby area of the school and just happened to be you know, one of the first people he would encounter that day. Um, he actually tried to shoot me from behind before I saw him. Um, but he was unable to get the safety off of the gun. And so he, he couldn't shoot me that time, um, which gave me time to, um, get up and run into a supply closet and, and shut the door. Um, he fired through the door and the bullet went through my hand Um, and I spent about five minutes, um, hiding in, in the closet until help arrived. Thankfully, a lot of people had seen him come into the school and called 911. Um, and it was actually a off duty security guard that heard, um, the call, the 911 call come over the police scanner. And he drove to the school, um, totally unarmed. He was with his wife out celebrating their anniversary and, Hmm. um, he just felt, led to come to the school and he stopped the shooter um, and and got me out and, and got me the, the help I needed. One other student was shot and she survived as well, thankfully. Um, 
Yeah. So I, I went to the hospital that day and had my first surgery, um, my first of four. It took um, a year of occupational therapy and, and physical therapy to regain about 20% use of my hands. So um, pretty substantial disability from it, mm. but walked away with my life. And um, so over the years, I, I got more involved um, with learning about about gun violence and how it affects our country and our communities and sort of reevaluated a lot of what, what I believed, what I had experienced before and after the shooting. Um, and yeah, now I'm, I'm thankful to work with other survivors and, and try to educate people on, on kind of this crisis that not everyone has a personal experience with. Yeah. And again, wow. the book is called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough. Uh, and, and Taylor, uh, before we dive into kind of the meat of the book, I, I would just love to know wh- when you go through something like that, how does it change the trajectory of your life? How does that kind of end up in some ways defining everything you kind of do after it? Yeah. I mean, for me, it changed everything. I was um, only 20, 22 when it happened. So it was about six weeks before um, my wedding was scheduled. We had to change um, all of our plans. My husband was set to start his graduate school that year and we had to push that back. So it affected his life greatly. Mm. Um, And all the plans I had for myself um, had to change along with it. Um, And my, my abilities changed. The experience I had you know, kind of walking alongside my friends changed because suddenly my life was very different and Mm -hmm. people were living a different life than I was. And, you know, even now, um, when we, when we started talking about having kids, um, I was really afraid, you know, can I take Mm -hmm. care of a baby? Can I take care of a toddler, um, with this, you know, what, what is this going to look like for me? Um, and then of course, kind of like the emotional, and mental struggles that that come with it too. You know, I, I still see a a therapist, and yeah. and um, but I do still deal with a lot of PTSD and and anxiety, and um, so I have to figure out how that is gonna kind of affect my daily life too. So, um, you know, I've I've healed a lot, and and I'm doing very well now, and I'm thankful for that. But it, you know, it's still always there. Um, and then. You know, when I experience physical pain, it's it's a reminder, you know, oh, yeah. I'm in pain because of this thing that happened to me. And, and it's hard to kind of completely um, erase it from your life. It's just impossible. Yeah. yeah. Taylor, one of the things that um, it says in the intro to your book, again, the title is When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Again, one of the things in the intro says is, Someone has to decide that enough is enough. This pain has to be used to propel us to a better future. I know we want to talk about some like practical skills the church can um, take on to begin advocating for gun reform. But I, I wonder for you, just where did you begin to decide somehow I, like this pain has to have a purpose? I have to do something with it. How did you move from your own kind of journey of, of grief and physical pain into, into like a movement, into writing, into advocating? I think the biggest thing was, and it sounds so simple, was that it just kept happening. I, 
you know, I was shot and there's like this little part of you that is like, wow, this is so terrible. I can't believe this happened to me. We won't let this happen to anyone else. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. But obviously that's not the way things work and it did keep happening. Um, And so I kept hearing about shootings, school shootings, um, shootings in our neighborhood, what, you know, all types of gun violence. And every time it broke me a little bit more because while other people can see those stories on the news and be sad for a few minutes and then forget them and move on, I couldn't do that. I knew what those people were going through, what they were about to go through, what their life was going to look like, and I couldn't forget. And I just decided we can't keep adding more people into this very unfortunate club that we're in of survivors. We can't keep expecting people to experience this kind of suffering and then wonder why, um, you know, people are struggling in our, in our country and in our communities, our neighbors, you know, these are people that, that we're meant to love and support and, um, be with. And at some point we have to look that in the face and decide that we don't want, our neighbors to have to suffer that way anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Taylor, we really appreciate you telling your story. You're going to stick with us and we're going to talk more about the book, but before we get to that, I would just, what did an experience like this do to your relationship with God? How did that become transformed through what you went through? Yeah. I like to say that before the shooting, you know, I, I had experienced some hard things, but mostly my life had been pretty good, pretty comfortable. And so that was the God I knew I didn't have to, know the God that was over my suffering and with me in my darkest moments. That So I had to kind of get to know him and get to know, you know, the truth that, that the Bible tells us that God is near to the brokenhearted and with the, you know, he binds up our wounds, he bottles up our tears, you know, those mm. kinds of truths that for me had been things I read about, but hadn't um, physically and spiritually experienced. And um, I'm so thankful that I, I know that God now. Mm, that's powerful. Again, Taylor Schumann is the author of a book called When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. Uh, Taylor, for people who haven't experienced this like you have, obviously not many of us have, uh, help us understand what you think is actually behind the gun violence argument. I didn't grow up in a family or in an area where guns were a big thing. And so I really don't really understand it. So help us understand kind of the um, the arguments behind the gun debate in our culture. Yeah, I think largely, you know, especially where I live in the South and where I grew up in the South, um, and in other parts of the country too, it's of course not limited to, to us down here. Um, but guns are very much a part of, of culture, a part of lives. People own guns for, um, hunting. They own them for recreation as a hobby. Um, but a lot of what you're going to hear, um, in, in the sort of the debate around gun violence and around gun reform is the idea of having them, um, for protection, for self-defense, um, because that, um, is something that a right that we're granted in the second amendment, the right to bear arms. Um, And so a lot of the arguments are are kind of around how far that amendment stretches, uh, what specific rights we're given sort of under that idea of, of bearing arms. Um, And, you know, largely that's, that's kind of the argument. It's my right. It's my right to own this. It's my right to have this. Um, and, and that cannot be taken away. That cannot be restricted. Um, and, you know, kind of on the other side, we're saying, yes, of course, that that's our right. We've been given this right. But um, how, how far does that go? 
what what um, regulations can we put on this to keep more people safe? Um, and and so that's kind of a large basis of of the argument. I um I do come from gun culture. I grew up in Oklahoma, so Ooh. I have I hear that all the time. Yeah. Like this is for protection. I, I wonder, Taylor. Sometimes I feel like this ends up being another conversation in a series of conversations about individual rights versus the collective good. Yes. And I wonder if you can unpack that a little bit for our listeners. Yeah, this is definitely something that um, has sort of really encompassed the the debate about guns and and a lot of you know, things that we see in our culture as well. You know, I, I can think of the same arguments being applied to COVID and masking and um, all that kind of stuff too. But, you know, in the gun debate, you know, people really like to cling to their right. They like to say, this is my individual right and not really think through how exercising that right might affect other people, might affect the collective good. Um, you know, yes, we can you know, I can own guns as many as I want, um, you know, kind of stockpile them in my house, carry them for self-defense. But is the, is that culture affecting people in a good way or a bad way? Is it causing harm or is it helping heal? And these are questions we need to ask ourselves. And people don't like to give up things that are theirs, things that they're owed, things that they believe they should be allowed to do. That That's hard, you know, for any of us um, to think about. But I think that if we could really ask ourselves, what is gun culture doing to our country? How is it affecting people? I think that would be a great place to start. Yeah. Yeah. And Taylor, the, the title of your book is somewhat provocative, right? When thoughts yeah. and prayers aren't enough, uh, because often in the church, we're like, well, we're going to pray about that. We're going to pray. And uh, can you talk to me just about that title and maybe uh, maybe even how it affected you when, when you went through your shooting and people said, oh, I'm praying for you in thoughts and prayers. Talk to me about the title of your book. Of course. Yeah. So first thing, you know, I've been a, a follower of Jesus since I was, you know, six years old, grew up in church. I love the Lord. I believe in prayer and the power of prayer. And I believe that I would not be where I am today um, without all the people who prayed for me. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, we are also instructed to do other things as believers of God. We are not told to to pray and, and do nothing else. Um, you know, we are given hands and feet um, to be the hands and feet of Jesus here. Um, and that means we get to use them and we get to pray and then we get to ask, what else can I do now? Um, you know, I've prayed, I've invited the Lord into this, I've asked for guidance. So what is he asking me to do? Um, and so I, you know, we titled the book this, not because I don't believe in prayer, but because I believe in prayer so much that I don't think it should be used as an excuse to not take it further, to not do yeah. what we can mm-hmm. to um, not only help and support people who experience gun violence, but try to prevent more people from experiencing it. Um, so, you know, I think of the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, he didn't just pray for the man and then leave right. him on the side of the road. Right. Um, you know, he he did what he could um, to to help with the man's physical needs. And, mm. and we can do that too. Oh, it's so good. Taylor, again, the name of the book we're talking about, When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. I want to ask you a two-part question for like two different spectrum of listeners that might be paying attention right now. 
for those who are really like, yes, I am passionate about gun reform. Give me one thing to do. Can you give them one thing to do? And then I think on the the other side of the coin, for those who are like, no, 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 you are you are stepping on that Second Amendment right. Um, what's maybe one step to move the needle forward uh, for that person as well in a, in a compassionate way? Yeah. So if you're someone that you know is really um, you know you already support gun reform, you, you already know what you're talking about. Um, my ask of you would be to make sure you are open about that and talking about that with the people around you, um, and willing to have uh, nuanced, open conversations. Um, because you know, I, I think that we look at this as if um, you know just passing more laws, more regulations, which obviously I believe are important um, as if that will kind of solve the problem. But, you know, I think we could pass all the laws we wanted to, but if people's hearts don't change, Mm. if the culture doesn't change behind those, then I don't think we're actually solving the real problem. Um, and so we need more people who are willing to, to talk about that in a, in a really helpful, constructive way. Um, and of course, you know, you can donate money to organizations that are on the ground, your local violence prevention, um, organizations, most, most places have, uh, at least some form of that. And they're doing really great work in our local communities. Um, and if you are, uh, sort of feeling really uncomfortable, um, by the things I'm talking about and you're just really not sure um, how that could apply to you, why it's your problem. Um, I would just ask you to um, pray about that, to um, maybe open yourself up a little bit to um, what other people might be experiencing, the hurt that they're experiencing, the suffering, and and just asking, you know, could I... Um, see a new argument here? Am I missing something because I haven't experienced it myself? Um, And, you know, if you're willing, grab a copy of my book. Um, (laughs) I really try to, to talk to you, um, to keep it um, nuanced, to, to make sure that the, the conversation, the the information I'm offering is constructive Um, because, you know, it's, this is an emotional issue. Um, Mm. People have, a lot of um, ties to to guns, why they have them, how they grew up. Like this is an emotional thing and, and guns for a lot of people make them feel safe and they make you feel safe. Um, and so it's, it's hard to kind of look at that and say, well, this makes me feel safe and I don't want to give that up. Well, yeah. the facts might tell you something different and, and try to be open about that. And if you can, uh, you know, read my book or something I've written um, and, you know, still disagree with me, that's okay. Thank you so much for, for reading. Um, but I hope to offer something that might help you think a little differently about this. Again, the name of the book is When Thoughts and Prayers Aren't Enough, A Shooting Survivor's Journey into the Realities of Gun Violence. That author is Taylor Schumann. You can learn more about Taylor at taylorschumann.com and also connect with her on Twitter at Taylor S. Schumann. That's at Taylor S. Schumann. Uh, Taylor, this was wonderful. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's our pleasure. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so glad that you're with us here today. As you know, on The Common Good, our big goal is to rise above lines of division to find the common good. So we're very appropriately named, by the way. That's right. One of the questions we love to ask is how we can come together as Christians, even when we disagree. And because of that, Brian and I have guests on that we know you agree with and disagree with. We have guests on that we agree with and disagree Mm -hmm. with. But part of that is because Brian and I are passionate about nuance and perspective and finding unity on topics that can sometimes be controversial. And I think freedom of speech, cancel culture is one of those Mm -hmm. big topics. What do you think, Brian? Absolutely. And I think freedom of speech uh, is an important tenet of who we are as a culture. Yeah. Also reminding that freedom of speech does not mean freedom from consequences. Ah. And so, uh, freedom of speech means, Aubrey, that I can say something uh, and I'm not going to get arrested for, you know, because somebody disagrees with it. But it doesn't mean that a corporation doesn't have the right to, you know, quote unquote, cancel me or the church doesn't have the right to fire me over something I said. Like sometimes we yell freedom of speech, meaning freedom of consequences. That's not what it means. Uh, but yeah, it's an important tenet of our, of our, uh, of our democracy that, yeah. that needs to be fought for. That's a good breakdown, Brian. I don't think I've heard you say that before. That's good. Freedom mm-hmm. of speech is important. It does not mean freedom of consequences. Correct. Freedom from consequences. Right. Okay, well, I'm bringing this up because you know, Brian, there is a massive story. It's been in the news for a few weeks, but Dave Chappelle, the comedian, came out with his last special on Netflix called The Closer. Mm-hmm. And uh, it got some wild pushback because he said some uh, disparaging things about trans people. And he came alongside uh, declaring himself like a supporter of J.K. Rowling, who has said some things that trans people have been offended by. Right, right. People have lost their minds over this, being really offended and some people really hurt. But then uh, Netflix, some employees, some trans employees specifically and trans supporters tomorrow are staging a walkout at Netflix asking for some demands. Now, these are even bigger than the Dave Chappelle special, but it's really fascinating the way some of the things that he said on the show are now impacting real life. I actually want us to play a little bit of audio to get the background of this story. So let's go ahead and listen to that. Dave Chappelle is doubling down on his jokes amid controversy surrounding his new Netflix special, The Closer. Comedian took center stage Thursday night at the Hollywood Bowl for a sold-out show, performing to a crowd that included Brad Pitt, Tiffany Haddish, Stevie Wonder, John Hamm, and more. While the comedian did not repeat any of the jokes in the special that have been loudly rejected, he did have a few things to say on cancel culture, saying, if this is what being canceled is like, I love it. Many in the LGBTQ community, in particular trans women, have objected to the comic's Netflix special after Chappelle used their real lives, bodies, and gender identity as punchlines in The Closer. On the topic of gender, Chappelle said in the special, gender is a fact. Every human being in this room, every human being on Earth, had to pass through the legs of a woman to be on Earth. That is a fact. The National Black Justice Coalition called for the closer to be pulled from the streamer and glad weighed in on Twitter. Dave Chappelle's brand has become synonymous with ridiculing trans people and other marginalized communities. For his part, Chappelle delivered an earnest moment while he doubled down on themes so prominently displayed in the dock. Do something nice for someone who looks nothing like you. We have to trust one another. Okay. 
So I want to talk about a couple things related to this story, Brian. Yeah. One, you and I have talked about uh, comedians before. Correct. And what their role is in American society. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I think, you know, you feel free to jump in here. But I think the reality is we know comedians historically, especially comedians that like aren't Christian comedians, right? And are on HBO or on Netflix mm-hmm. or whatever. Part of what they do is intentionally offend a lot of people to hold a magnifying glass up to culture. Would you agree right. with that? I would totally agree with that. Uh, at their best, uh, this is my old co-host used to say this, that comedians in many ways are the prophets of our day, right? Yeah. They serve a prophetic role. But Aubrey, you make also a great point. Like we're talking about Dave Chappelle here. Right. Like, like at what point did we not know that that's kind of Dave Chappelle? And I say shtick, not in a bad way, but that's his shtick, right? Like mm-hmm. he really stirs the pot. That's what he does. Yes. And so, um, you know, it, it's, yeah, you, you got to realize what these comedians do and uh, know that before you decide I'm going to buy this or I'm not going to buy this. Okay. So I think the, the bigger question is, I mean, Dave Chappelle is going to do what he's going to do. Mm-hmm. I think the question is this, as this uh, kind of cancel culture begins to trickle down into the church, specifically about sexuality, gender Mm -hmm. identity, this really complicated, nuanced conversation in which we would call the church to have a lot of compassion, more Mm -hmm. compassion than we do now. I think you and I would agree on that. Like we need to be way more compassionate to people in the LGBTQ questioning arena that said, a tenet of the evangelical faith and of scripture is that God has an original intent for sexuality, male and female, that God created a man and a woman. And I, I guess I'm just curious at what point like pastors have a really difficult time saying some of these things at risk of, you know, being canceled or at risk of not being able to teach the Bible. And maybe I'm getting paranoid. Maybe I'm like jumping the gun a little bit. But what do you think about that? Yeah, I think part of this is personality, right? Like, do I want to, am I comfortable being a quote unquote offensive? Like, am I comfortable? Some pastors are too comfortable with it. Yeah. Uh, Many of us are not comfortable enough. I would put it this way, Aubrey. I think the goal going forward in one of the goals going forward increasingly in this culture that is uh, pretty um, against a lot of what we hold up and, you know, is to say we are going to uh, love and um, bless our community, even those that disagree with us as best we can. Like that's going to be a motivating factor while not backing away from the things that we believe to be true and to be the word of God. And so I've told you this story before. Uh, We had a call at our church. This is going on eight years ago or whatever. Uh, A person called our church and said, uh, basically asked, are uh, homosexuals uh, welcomed at your church? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Everybody's welcomed here. Uh, And we meant it, right? Well, we're saying this like, yes, we want your, we want everybody to hear the gospel. Yes, you are welcomed here. Uh, on and on and on. And then the question was, uh, would you do my wedding? Mm. She asked. And I said, no, I wouldn't 
right. be able to do that. I wouldn't right. do that. And her exact words were, that doesn't sound real welcoming and just hung the phone Yeah, up. yeah. There's going to come breaking points, mm-hmm. right, that I think we have to be okay with. But also, we have to truly mean we love you, we welcome you. And if they can't, there, there's there's two sides to the argument. There's two yeah. sides to the discussion here. And so, Aubrey, I do think we have to decide what are we okay being quote unquote canceled for? Interesting. Okay? Am I willing to be canceled because I'm a jerk or yeah. I'm going to be argumentative all the time right. because I'm going to be overly political? Right. Am I as a pastor will, wanting to be canceled for those reasons or I'm going to be canceled for um, biblical reasons or gospel reasons yeah. or whatever else? I think there are way, there are times where we as Christians need to say, I'm willing to be canceled, quote unquote, in my culture for this. And other times where we go, this is not a hill to die on. In right. fact, I should be showing grace and love here. That's kind of, that's how I kind of see it. Yeah, I, I think that's think really wise, Brian. I just think it's going to be harder as time goes on here. Yeah, I definitely think it's going to be harder. And it, it may come to this moment where we're like erring on the side of grace while still standing on solid biblical truth as best we can. Mm-hmm. Actually, uh, this is a great segue. Tomorrow on the show, we're going to be joined by Mark Yarhouse. He's the director of the Sexual and Gender Identity Institute at Wheaton right. College. He's going to come on to talk about how we as Christians can respond with love and compassion and more understanding about transgender and sexuality identity issues. So we're going to learn a lot from him. Well, coming up next, I think this is a great, uh, another great segue into this topic. We're going to talk about other people's viewpoints and having our own viewpoints at the same time. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're so glad that you're with us today. I read something on Twitter. And this one I retweeted right away because I was like, oh, wow. Sometimes you don't hear enough people say this. And I, I, I know why it stood out to me, but I want to hear what you think about it. Okay. okay. This is Tracy Rhodes. She's an author on Twitter that I follow. And she said this, a willingness to see other viewpoints doesn't mean you don't have your own. Thinking it does misses the point. Mm. And, That's uh, hard. Yeah. Okay. So before I dive into what I think, what did you think about that? Yeah, this gets to kind of an intellectual curiosity that unfortunately a lot of us don't have. Mm. It's and and like um, a confidence that says, hey, I can hold a viewpoint, uh, but actually that viewpoint is going to become more informed and become even more strongly held as I hear other viewpoints. In our culture, oftentimes now we just we we stick to our bubble and we rip everybody else. Yeah, totally. But there's a there's an important curiosity that says, all right, Aubrey, you and I disagree about X, right? Uh, about whatever that will be. Uh, the best thing I can do is to not just yell at you as to what you should think, but to go, hey, help me understand why you think differently. Mm. Like, what's your viewpoint? Uh, and, and I think that makes us uh, more well rounded. It also causes us to have to think through our own viewpoints. Why do I think this? Why do I believe this to be true? Yes. Am I right? And yes. then it allows me to know what, quote unquote, the other side thinks. I, I just think we have probably it's social media and other things about us. 
we've lost the ability to be intellectually curious. Yes. Let me understand what other people think. And I don't do this great. I don't want to be like I'm the most intellectual reading across spectrums. But I think she's right when she says it misses the point to go. Everything's here's another thing. There are things in this world that are black and white. Yep. But we probably make things a lot more black and white. There's probably a lot more gray Mm -hmm. in a lot of these conversations. And to understand the nuance, to understand the gray, I think makes us better people. Yeah, I think that's so, so, so helpful, Brian. I remember a professor in my master's program at Wheaton. We were talking about a really difficult topic. I think it was even on this topic that we were um, mentioning earlier in today's show about transgender and, and gender fluidity. And sort of like, okay, what is a Christian's response and who may not understand this? And she said, well, that's it. You simply say, first of all, relationship matters, compassion Mm -hmm. matters. But then just to say to somebody who who you think differently, then, wow, that has not been my experience. Can you tell me more about that? And I literally, I was like typing that out because I was like, that is so so simple, but so profound not to just like shut off the conversation out of fear or because you disagree but instead have a have a a compassionate curiosity towards someone's perspective That's just right. to kind of like you were saying just to, just to go wait oh wow i think differently than that but but tell me more about your perspective yeah. i think you make it to the point where you don't agree you don't see eye to eye but at least you have treated the other with honor mm. and maybe built a relational bridge that you wouldn't have had before Yeah, I think this is a great way to do evangelism, right? Absolutely. So often we view evangelism, sharing our faith with another person as like a sales job. Like, I've got to tell you the four spiritual laws. I'm going to ask you, do you believe this? I'm going to close the deal like I'm selling you some sort of timeshare or whatever else it might be, especially in our current context. How much better of a conversation is it with your neighbor, your coworker, your friend to be like, Hey, uh, let me tell you what I believe, but also tell me what you think. What do you think about Jesus? What do you think about the church? And have a conversation over time that might leave you in two different spaces, but also might bring them into going, you know what? There is something to this Jesus. There's just a really different perspective there about how to attack evangelism. I think a lot of us were raised in the, um, you got to seal the deal today. Yeah. Uh, As opposed to leaving space, conversation, leaving space for the Holy Spirit to convict uh, and going that way. I think that this, I think, is is very true. Her tweet for politics, for covid, for all this stuff. But I also think it's true for the deep conversations of faith. And what do we believe about Jesus? Yeah, I think that's so good. Brian. Now, let me give you another perspective. This is someone responding to the tweet. Okay, and again, just for people who are jumping on right now, here's the tweet we're discussing from author Tracy Rhodes. A willingness to see other viewpoints doesn't mean you don't have your own. Thinking it does misses the point. Here's what somebody says, but it mentally puts us at risk that we might have to change our own viewpoint, which affects our ego. And that's scary. But if we regularly do it, we will find that either our own viewpoints get stronger or we're not as afraid for them to get weaker. Mm. I thought that was good because there is. I mean, the reality is it is a little bit scary to have to be like, oh, I'm going to go talk to this person that I like blatantly disagree with. And I know they blatantly disagree with me. And this, oh, this might be so hard and uncomfortable and awful. But I think the more we dive into what we're talking about, like building those bridges, then that builds relational credit, which can ultimately maybe help somebody who doesn't know Jesus get to know Jesus, like you were saying, Brian, and change us 
to maybe see things that we may not have seen before. And then we're only sharpened and we're only made into better, more Christ-like people when we can see things from different nuances and different perspectives. Yeah, but taking that posture is not what we do in our culture. Absolutely <laughs> not. Is, it is not. This is a counterculture. It's not what we do in our church culture. We talk a lot about echo chambers. We talk a lot about like, you know, bubbles. Uh, and what this is saying is, no, you have to be willing to engage with people, first of all, who aren't a part of your echo chamber, yeah. uh, who aren't a part of your bubble, and then not only engage them, but give them the respect to listen to them, to hear them out, help me understand. And, um, you know, Aubrey, I don't, this show serves that purpose, I know, for you and I every now and then, yeah. just going, all right, let's bring on people that I just don't agree with. Yeah. Let's hear what they've got to say and have that conversation. But where are the places in our own life? Again, I go back to the phrase intellectual curiosity. It's Mm. this curiosity that says, maybe I haven't figured everything out. Maybe I don't know everything. Um, You know, maybe I don't know. uh, Maybe not everything in my life needs to be a debate that's won or lost. Yeah. Uh, But maybe in talking with people, having a conversation, it's going to build relational equity and relational bonds, i.e. friendships. Uh, but it's also going to help me understand things that maybe I didn't know before mm. about topic A, topic B, whatever it is we're discussing. There's, I don't see anything wrong with taking that posture, but it, it really isn't the posture that we often take, especially in this world of Twitter and yeah, cable news. Totally, totally. Oh, it's so good. Such a good reminder for all of us. Well, coming up next, we're going to take a turn for the more positive and share some words of wisdom and affirmation from a two year old. And a 100-year-old. I can't wait for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm. And we're ending the show. We're landing the plane. (laughs) One of our favorite things to do at the end of every show is to send you away with something really inspiring or hopeful or encouraging. And Brian, I have some wisdom to share from both a 100-year-old. So we're learning like the wisdom of the elders and also a two-year-old. Uh, so I think we'll start with the 100-year-old. Let me set this up a little bit. This is Iris Apfel. She's a fashionista. She calls herself a geriatric starlet. <laughs> She's known for her sort of extravagant sense of fashion and just sort of being like all around this fabulous lady. But she's 100 years old, and she was on Good Morning America sharing uh, some secrets of living to 100 and some perspective and um, just how she is who she is. And I thought this was really fun. So let's go ahead and listen to Iris's wisdom. A sense of humor is absolutely necessary. I don't mean a ha-ha sense of humor, but I mean being able to look at all the silly little things and how foolish they are. And how many important things we really don't pay enough attention to. You've noticed I'm not a minimalist. I like all kinds of stuff. And I enjoy being able to put it together. More is more, and less is a bore, is much more sensible. I never subscribe to the theory that less was more. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's like having less money makes you richer. First of all, you have to learn who you are and dress accordingly. You have to learn to dress for yourself and not for the trends. And you have to look in the mirror and see yourself 
and not see somebody else. I think if more people would be themselves and spend a little time on getting out of the box and not wanting to be what everybody else is. God gave everybody a personality and I think they should exploit it and not try to hide it. Okay, I love that. I love that she just talks about having a sense of humor and acknowledging that God made us all uniquely and not worrying so much about what other people think. I I think that perspective is really fun, especially in a 100 year old who's wearing like giant feather boas and giant sunglasses. Like, I hope this is me when I'm 100. Yeah, I mean, I, <laughs> the fact that she's 100 is unbelievable. When yes. you see her, there is this boldness. She talks about being an individual, kind yeah. of a uh, just be yourself. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that's not why she made it to 100, but to see her keep her perspective of like, this is who I am, as opposed to, ah, I'm just defined by what everybody else says that right. I am. She's got a bold about it. Like, if you saw her walking down the street, uh, in the way she's dressed in this night, you'd be like, whoa, what's up with that person? Totally. You'd be like, who is that lady? Right. I think you'd That's also right. be shocked that she's 100. I think you'd be like, oh, wait, she's 100? Okay, she's amazing. She can do whatever yep. she wants to do. She's fine. I, that's so fun. Uh, you can find pictures of her if you want to online. Again, her name is Iris Appfell. Okay, now there's some uh, wisdom from a two-year-old that I wanted to share, Brian. This is really funny, but it's also very precious. So there's this two-year-old. And she was also on Good Morning America today. And she apparently has this morning mantra she says to herself every single morning. So I thought we have to play this for our listeners and then talk about it. Let's go ahead and listen to that. I see to myself, you're bold. You're brilliant. You're Today, you are not any people affect you. Okay, so you've got this little two-year-old Australian saying, you are bold, you are brilliant, you are beautiful, you will not let other people's words affect you. I mean, you know her mom is saying this to her every day, number one. That's what cracks me up about it. But then hearing her little voice and her little accent just... Like reminding us, it's okay. You are worthy. You can aspire to greatness. It's something so precious. Oh, it is. I mean, two years old, too. Uh, this is some good parenting, right? To keep these positive affirmations uh, to the fact you're re- reminded like at two years old, they're picking up stuff. But this is going to pay dividends, hopefully, in this child's life as this child gets older, right? Yeah. Reminding themselves. This is what we talk about in the Christian world as a catechism, right? Like, Oh, good. Uh-huh. This is what you believe. This is who God is. And um, just reminding ourselves of these things. There's many things that work against us. I think of uh, our friend Scott Sauls uh, had a tweet earlier. Oh, yeah. That we discussed where he says nearly every person you meet is insecure, overwhelmed and under encouraged. Uh, Consider taking some time off from people uh, to let people know who they are, like to Mm -hmm. let people be encouraged. But that everybody's insecure, overwhelmed, under encouraged. I find that to be so powerful. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah. At two years old, having this perspective is a wonderful thing. <laughs> I, I, I absolutely love that. And I think speaking of Scott Saul's tweet of how so many of us are overwhelmed and under encouraged, I, I think it's so helpful for us to remember and, and really like call to mind in a, in a like strong way, how much our words matter and how much our words influence other people. You and I have talked about on the show, how you're a words of affirmation person, right? Like you like yeah. verbal encouragement and really who doesn't? Even if that's not your love language per se, it is so, so encouraging to have someone speak words of affirmation over you or for you to speak words of affirmation over other people. That's over right. at uh, Parade.com, um, they list 125 words of affirmation. I'm not going to share, obviously, all 125 but I wanted to leave uh, some of these with you listeners, maybe just to inspire you to start encouraging other people and do some self-affirmation like mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. Australian two-year-old and like Iris uh, Apfel as well. Okay, so here are some of these words of affirmation. Thank you for X, Y, Z. That's a, that's a pretty basic one, but an important one. Um, I love it when you fill in the blank. It made me so happy when you... Here's another one that I know a lot of wives and a lot of uh, husbands who cook like to hear. That meal you made was delicious. <laughs> I love how smart, funny, kind, organized, fill in the blank you are. Here's a cute one. You make my heart sing. Mm. I like that. All right. Are there any words of affirmation that you particularly connect to, Brian? You know, I do. I, I like when somebody close to me uh, says something specific, right? Like it's another thing just to be like, you know, Aubrey, I think you're like, it'd be right here. I could be like, hey, I think you're a good writer and you'd feel good about that. Yeah, right? totally. Or I could say, hey, I really appreciated, enjoyed this specific thing that you wrote. Mm. You're like, oh, like he took the time to read Paying it. Paying attention. Kind of, yeah, yeah, there's this. And so don't get me wrong. I enjoy kind of the general affirmation as well. Hey, uh, good sermon this week. Yeah. Or, hey, here's what this sermon, th this particular part you know, really challenged me. Like there's a difference there. And so I think when there's a specificity for me, I, I think it, it takes on uh, a greater depth. How about for you? What kind of resonates with you? Yeah, I was actually thinking that, too. And this requires, especially for my poor, precious husband, like paying a lot of attention to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do like that sort of specific, like, oh, Aubrey, I love it when you do X, Y, Z for our kids. Or I, I love the way you said that one thing. Or I love when, you know, mm -hmm. e even like when my kids, I make a banana bread every once in a while that my kids are obsessed with. And I love when they're like, mom, we love your banana bread so much. Like, I don't know mm -hmm. why, but you're right. Like that specificity, I think part of it is because it makes us feel seen. Like yes. it's not even just the words. It's that someone has paid enough attention to you to notice something that you did or notice something about your personality or character that they name it. And that's just to feel seen makes you feel loved, frankly. Yes. So it's absolutely true. That's really, that's kind of the power of words of affirmation, whether it's self-affirmation or it's affirming somebody else that we can make somebody feel seen, known and loved. And because of that, make a really massive difference in their day. Absolutely. And so I'd encourage people uh, do that with people close to you. Take that time. It matters. But like you mentioned, also do that when you look in the mirror. <laughs> like, yeah, that's it. Uh, you know, uh, kind of rehearse however works for you some specific things that that are positive about yourself, because we could do so much negative self-talk and that becomes hard. And so yeah. uh, 
do that for others, but do it for yourself as well. Yeah. Well, we hope that encourages you today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow from 4 to 6 p.m. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.